0: The
1: Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences, written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book, without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit the therookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, junkies. Well, if I sound a little different to you, that is because it finally happened. I got the COVID. After years now of avoiding cons, masking up like a boss, of getting vaxxed and boosted and boosted and boosted, I let my guard down to attend the wedding of my awesome nephew. It was a family affair. The whole clan out in Pennsylvania with the bride's whole clan, which made for a whole bunch of people I did not know. I figured, you know what? Let's take a risk on the big event, the likes of which I have not seen in three years. And guess what? I pop positive on the old COVID test. Now, for me, the symptoms aren't that bad. A tiny bit of a fever, sore throat, which you can probably hear. I have a mild cough, but when doing that clears out a little bit of gunk in the old lung area, it feels like someone's dragging barbed wire through my throat. Not very fun. I'm also a little spacey in the head, so being selective about writing times, and I am napping whenever the mood strikes me, but I can still taste and smell stuff, so I count myself very lucky. It seems vaccinations have a heavy mitigating factor on symptoms, i.e. if you are vaxxed and you get it, it ain't nearly as bad, and it is rarely life-threatening. So, keep in mind, if you're the kind of person who doesn't get out much, like me, when you do get out, strongly consider masking up. I am triple boosted and I caught it. You can too, you lucky person. And the good news, at the time of recording this, a real girl herself is still negative for the COVID. Let's keep our fingers crossed, y'all. That's it for this week's Jabber. Let's get caught up on the story so far, and then we're all going to sleep for, like, hours in the middle of the damn day, because our body tells us to. Previously on The Rookie. At the strong urging of Coach Holcor the hook chest, Gredock the splithead went out on a limb to acquire one Quentin Barnes. Barnes's struggles in the practice room now have Hocor on the hot seat. How long will Gredock wait before Hocor has to pay the real price of failure? Excerpt from Religion and Empire, Mason Stewart's Purist Church
2: It has been argued for centuries whether Mason Stewart was, indeed, a true prophet or was just the right man in the right place at the right time. Earth's ancient history is fraught with war and hatred between the dominant religions. Three religions, in particular Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, have been at each other's throats for millennia. Historians can only estimate the number of deaths caused by altercations among these sects, and yet the most ironic part is that all three, essentially, worship the very same god. It was this one true god that Mason Stewart called upon when he founded the purest nation just three months after humanity's first interstellar contact, the historic Message from Space, sent out by the Wittok Race in 2395. Humanity's reaction to the discovery of life on other planets was mixed at best, ranging from boundless optimism to prophecies of doom and destruction. Elements of all three major religions rallied against the concept of intelligent life on other planets. Stuart's fire and brimstone speeches catered to these elements. Stuart's new church was not an offshoot of Christianity or Islam or Judaism, but a new construct that incorporated elements of all three. Many historians feel that Stuart's incorporation of religious elements is proof positive that he was a calculating opportunist, that he skillfully created a philosophy familiar enough to be comfortable for members of all three religions. Members of the purest nation, however, say Stuart was a direct conduit for God, whom Stuart called the High One. Stuart painted a picture that the three religions were not wrong, just that man's interpretation had not been quite right. The presence of alien life caused a great schism in all three religions. The leaders of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam supported humanity's involvement with the other races, yet millions of rank-and-follow members did not. Fundamentalist movements sprang up all over the world, growing in numbers and strength when the Watokians... Establish a permanent colony on Earth in 2406. Severe violence marked the various schisms as fundamentalists sought to kill Watokians, driving them from Earth and take control away from blasphemous church leaders. As Stuart's church gained strength, his message called out to these fundamentalists. He gave them exactly what they wanted, an organized, religiously justified platform from which to hate the alien races. The Purist Nation boldly claimed responsibility for terrorist actions that caused the lives of thousands of Otokian immigrants. The crackdown of 2431, however, put a permanent end to those terrorist acts. Governments and religions around the world cooperated to capture or kill Purist Nation terrorists. With his best shock troops eliminated, Stewart faced a turning point in his power base. Instead of trying to play politics, he called upon the immense wealth of his church to outfit a fleet of starships. Over 5 million followers of the purest Nation fled Earth at the end of 2431. The journey was difficult, to say the least. Poor technology, overcrowding, and accidents caused the loss of some 30 ships and over 1 million lives before the purest Nation fleet colonized the first planet named Stuart after their bold leader. Many elements of this exodus has been incorporated in the Purest Nation holy text. The new planet gave the Purest Nation a home of free of cultural influence from Earth. Hoker the
1: hook chest sat in the control room mounted 100 feet up from the practice field end zone. A dozen small holotanks lined the big window that looked out onto the field. The holotanks let him watch any of his players at any time, wherever they were in the ship. The keys slept together, as was their custom. They looked like a pile of legs and long bodies. The key section of the ship consisted of four large rooms, the communal room, the feeding room, and sleeping rooms for offense and defense, respectively. He visited their communal room at least four or five times a season. It was decorated with multicolored mosses and various slimes he was told were plants. He'd entered the defensive room once and only once because the place stank like a combination of rancid meat and animal offal. Key family units slept together. It wasn't sexual. He'd heard stories about the key mating season and had no intention of ever witnessing such a brutal display. He made the offense and defense sleep separately. They had to face off against each other in practice every day, and when they all slept as one big family unit, they were far too civil to each other. He needed violence and aggression on the practice field. It was the only way to prepare the team for the weekly war against other GFL squads. The Sklorno were deep into their morning worship. There were 13 of the beings on the team, 7 receivers and 8 defensive backs. Even after 10 seasons of coaching, the Sklorno still seemed so bizarre to him. They worship strange things like trees, the clouds on certain planets, works of literature, and, strangest of all, quarterbacks and coaches. Three of the veteran receivers were high-ranking members of the Donald Pine Church. Another two, both defensive backs, worshipped Frank Zimmer of the Toe Pirates. He didn't know what the rest worshipped, and he didn't care, as long as it didn't complicate football. He rarely checked up on the Quith warriors. He saved his spying for the sub-races. The warriors deserve the right to come and go as they pleased. Eleven of his thirteen humans were in bed, sleeping away. Ibrahim Khomeini, the 525-pounder from Voser III, was, of course, eating again. Hokor wondered how those heavy G-human worlds maintained any economy at all, considering how much their subjects ate. Between Khamenei and Alexander Michnik, also from Volser Three, they daily consumed enough food for 10 normal G humans. But while Holcor kept tabs on all of his players, he was really only concerned with one. Quentin Barnes. The human rookie was in the virtual practice room, working away on the timing that had given him so much trouble in the first three days of practice. The door to his control room hissed open, Hokor's antenna went up, briefly, long enough to sense the presence of Greedek. He stood, turned, and brushed back his antenna.
3: Don't bother, old friend. Sit down. Continue what you are doing.
1: Hokor sat and again turned his attention to Quentin. The human surveyed his holographic players and the holographic team, then dropped back as the line erupted into holographic chaos. He took a strong five-step drop, set up, and rifled the ball downfield. It fell short of the holographic Scarborough. A defender dove to intercept the ball.
3: He's up early for a human, isn't he? It's just him and Ibrahim.
1: Greedock looked at the monitor that showed Ibrahim, sitting alone at a table with four heaping trays of food spread out before him.
3: Females be saved. Do these hygiene humans ever stop eating? I swear his salary is nothing compared to his food bill. If you can locate a 525-pound quith warrior who can bench press a 1,000 pounds, I'd be happy to trade for him.
1: Greedock watched Quentin run the same play. This time, he threw ahead of Scarborough for an incompletion.
3: Does do this a lot. He doesn't socialize with the other players. He spends most of his time in the BR room repeatedly running plays.
1: Greedock said nothing. Quentin lined up again, dropped back, and ran the same play. This time, the ball sailed over the leaping defender and hit the holographic Scarborough in full stride.
3: Nice pass. How long has he been at it? Two hours. How's he doing? Horrible. But he's improving fast. Horrible? I watched him in practice yesterday. He threw 75-yard strikes like they were nothing.
1: Hokor turned to look at his shamakath.
3: He's only been playing the game for four years and in a very low-quality league. He's never thrown to score on receivers before, and he's not used to passing using a three-dimensional game instead of a two-dimensional game. Throwing routes is one thing, but he's not ready for the speed of real defensive backs. Well, he'd better get ready for it. I went through a lot of trouble to get him. We had to get him now. One more season and every team in the GFL would have been after him. I just don't know how long he'll take to develop. Need I remind you, coach? ''Hokor, that this is your third season. I don't really care about development time. I care about winning. I want this team in tier one next season. All the good trade routes require tier one immunity, and you know that.''
1: Hokor did know that. Trade routes was a nice way of saying smuggling routes. Hokor didn't care for that part of the business at all, but that was the way the league worked.
3: ''I'm sure that in two seasons, maybe three... Quentin will be the best player in the league. You don't have two seasons. You wanted Don Pine. I got you Don Pine. You wanted Choto the Bright. I got him for you. You found out one of my lieutenants had tier three experience. So Virak the Mean is playing football instead of acting as my bodyguard and enforcer. I spent a fortune on Mumu Killui. I gave up my drug distribution in Egypt City for him because you said we had to have him. I upgraded this ship because you said it would help us win games. Do you think that that was cheap? No, Shamakath!
1: Hokor knew the ship's retrofit had been horribly expensive, but he was a firm believer that if you wanted to play like a Tier 1 team, you had to practice like a Tier 1 team.
3: I want Tier 1 and I'm willing to spend money to get it. The time for investing is over. The time for profit is near. You will win the Quithradiated conference and get us into the Tier 2 tournament and qualify us for Tier 1 next season, or someone else will be around to watch Quentin Barnes turn into the best player in the league.
1: Greedock stood and walked out of the control room course slowly turned back to the holotank, just in time to see Quentin throw another interception. His petty palps quivered in frustration. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts
2: with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women.
3: Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it.
0: Excerpt from Rise to Power, the Quith Concordia 2752 to Present, by Violer the Meek. It is often mentioned in galactic history texts that the Quith Concordia's rise to power is merely a fluke of biology. The Quith, after all, are the only sentient species that can completely ignore latent radiation. Even when that radiation reaches levels high enough to kill humans, Key, Sklorno, Hora, Witok, Leaky and Kretorakians. This innate ability allowed the Quith to expand from one planet to a five-planet empire rich in mineral wealth. In the seminal year of 2573, the Quith shocked the galaxy by establishing a permanent, flourishing colony on the planet of Grichlik, which the Sklorno irradiated during the Quith-Sklorno War. By the end of 2573, the Quith had also colonized three other irradiated worlds Whitok, Ionoth, and Chick-Chick. This marked the fastest expansion in the galaxy's history and instantly catapulted the Quith from a galactic second stringer to a major player on the political landscape. Yet despite the Concordia's continued success, and despite the fact that the Concordia is one of only six systems to remain independent from the Kretorakian Empire, sociologists from other species continue to say that the Quith's success relies solely on resistance to radiation. These so-called experts like to point out that the Quith's expansion was largely unchallenged because no government could justify fighting a war over a dead planet. An interesting stance, but how logical is it? Humans, for example, target planets rich in oxygen with Earth-like gravity. The Tower Republic and Li Key Collective have cooperatively shared planets in the same system, with the Republic taking the land and the Collective claiming domain over the oceans. Is that not a perfect example of a biological fluke resulting in expansion of territory? The Republic and the Collective do not war over planets because they each occupy non-competitive ecological niches. The Hara, as another example, are the only species in the galaxy that can live on gas-giant planets. And yet how many experts point out the biological fluke that has led the Hara to become a five-planet empire of immense military and political power? And how many of these mostly human experts point out the obvious that while all human governments bend to the will of the Kretorakian Empire, the Quith Concordia remains independent.
1: Chapter 6 Arrival on Ionath He was glad it was late, because he could be alone in his room, and no one would see his sweat, look at his wide eyes, or hear his ragged breathing. The touchback was about to punch out. Just relax, just relax. Everything's fine. Quentin had often heard that if things were to go wrong with punch drive travel, it would happen either on the punch in or the punch out of the space-time hole. Punching out always made him think of that age-old purist folk saying, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the landing. Don't panic. Breathe, breathe. It's almost here. He felt the shimmer come. Felt, not saw because he couldn't bear to have his eyes open and see the reality wave lightly caress the ship and everything in it. And once again, nothing happened. His held breath slipped out of his tense body, the tinge of horror clinging to his soul. He'd come to accept the fact that if he wanted his dream of glory in a GFL championship, he'd just have to ignore his fear of flying. He felt the slight tug of the touchback's main engines kicking in, maneuvering the ship to a geosynchronous orbit. Quentin moved to his viewport and looked out onto the glowing red sphere that was Ionath, planet that held Ionath City, the home of the Ionath Krakens. He'd learned all about Ionath in school. In 2558, during the Third Galactic War, the Sklorno Navy saturation bombed the planet, rendering it a radioactive wasteland completely devoid of all life. That bombing was proof the holy men liked to say, of the Sklorno satanic nature. It also proved that the Prowat race, who had inhabited the planet, were also satanic and suffered the wrath of the High One for their evil ways. Quentin had been only nine when he noticed a pattern that just about everything bad that happened to other races or cultures was proof of satanic tendencies. The only people who didn't suffer satanic-related incidents were, coincidentally, the people of the purest nation. But despite the bombing, or perhaps despite Satan, Ioneth had not remained devoid of life. In 2573, the Quith shocked the galaxy by establishing a permanent colony on the planet. In the 110 Earth years that followed, the colony grew to a population of 500 million Quith. In addition, the Quith introduced flora and fauna that not only ignored radiation, but often used it in place of sunlight to capture energy. In just over a century, the quith transformed Ionath from a lifeless orb into a flourishing, growing, vibrant planet. The holy men cited this as proof of the quith's satanic nature, for only a being from hell could live on hell itself. While the quith flourished on Ionath, the radiation hadn't just gone away, and other sentient races could not survive on the planet's surface. The quith wanted commerce with other species, so Ionath, like the other irradiated planets of Witok and Chikchik, had several domed cities free of radiation. The domed areas acted as a downtown, a central hub of the non-protected areas. Ionath City boasted the largest rad-free dome on the planet. About 110 sentients lived inside the two-mile diameter dome, with another 4.1 million quith living outside. The football stadium, of course, sat inside the dome. INF Stadium was also known as the Big Eye. Quentin had dreamed of playing in such a place. Seating capacity, 185,000. An open-air stadium, but since it existed under the city dome, the weather never changed. It was always 85 degrees, the Galaxy accepted standard for multi-race environments. Eighty-five seemed hot to most humans, a bit cool for the key, borderline cold for Sklerno and Kretorakians, and ideal for Quith. In the past, when the Krakens were a running team, rumor had it that for critical games, the temperature system for all of Ionath City Dome would often, quote, malfunction, end quote, dropping the temperature to 75 degrees or below, a temperature more suited to human running backs. Quen's game was improving but he'd been less than impressive during his four days with the team. He'd never even considered that he'd have such a hard time adjusting. They had two more days of practice, then the season opener against the Wu Crawlers, And the second of those two days was a non-contact practice, a pre-game run-through. That meant he really only had one more day to convince Hokor that he was ready to play Tier 2 ball. But was he ready? Pine made everything look so easy, so smooth, and that only magnified Quentin's constant struggles. But if Pine could do it, Quentin could do it. Mind games from Hocor That's what all this crap was. Learn every opposing player, their stats, their history, run laps, a bunch of busy work designed to show Quentin who was boss. Well, Quentin had broken Coach Graber, and Hokor would be no different. And yet, in the back of his mind, Quentin wondered if Hokor was different from Coach Graber. Hokor acted like he'd be perfectly willing to put Quentin on the next shuttle back to the Purist Nation. But was that just an act? Quentin wasn't sure, and that gave him an uneasy feeling he'd never experienced before. He slid out of bed and started stretching. Today's practice would be very important, and he wanted to be ready. The entire team assembled in a landing bay in a big half-circle around Greedek and Hokor. As usual, players mostly grouped with their own species. Quentin stood with Warburg and Yasud. Pine, as Quentin had come to expect, stood with one of the alien races. This time, the key linemen. Greedek spoke, and everyone listened.
3: We will now be taking shuttles down to our facility in Ionath City. Most of you know the drill. The shuttle will make four runs. Veterans go down in the first two runs, then free agents, new to the team, and finally, rookies. And after practice, my workers will show you to your apartments, which have already been assigned. All apartments are close to the stadium. The dome is a reasonably safe area, and as Kraken's players, you will usually be awarded respect. However, Iron City is not a vacation resort, so be careful. You are responsible for your body, and care for any injuries sustained while not on the practice or playing field. will be docked from your pay, especially you, Yasud.
1: Yasud looked as if his best friend had just insulted his mother. Me? Why would you say that? Greedock's petty palps twitched once.
3: I've read your record, Yasud. More tavern fight arrests than some of my low-level enforcers. If you insist on causing problems, you should pray... That the police put you in jail instead of bringing you back to me. Do you understand?
1: For once, Yasud said nothing, simply nodded instead of speaking.
3: And as for you, Mumokilui, I will be more than happy to send you home in a body bag if you act as you have when you played in the Skolorno Leagues.
1: Shizzle appeared as if from nowhere, swooped over to Mumokilui, and provided a quick translation. Mumokilui started saying something in his loud, harsh way... But before he managed a couple of syllables, another key lineman reached out with a long arm and flicked him in the vocal tubes. Mm-hmm. Quentin recognized the flicker as Maya Anikol, the veteran defensive tackle. Mumo Killaway looked offended, as near as Quentin could read key emotion, but then he fell silent.
3: That is all. The veterans will now board for the first run to Ionath City.
1: Veterans, including Pine, Entered the shuttle as the rest of the team dispersed. Quentin looked at Yusud. What was all that about? You a troublemaker or something? Yusud shrugged. I have no idea. I have never caused a problem in all of my life. Warburg stepped up. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Warburg looked down at the smaller Yusud. Just don't hang out with him in the city, Quentin. We don't want his influence to lead us astray. Yasud put a hand to his chest. You offend me, sir. I would never think to corrupt a pious member of the church. He walked off, shaking his head in disbelief as if he'd been greatly misjudged. Two Sklorno, Denver, and Milford approached. Warburg's demeanor instantly changed from doubt to intimidation, if not outright hostility. Denver's raspers dragged along the floor, actually leaving a thin trail of saliva on the flight deck. Her see-through carapace was so disconcerting, Quentin could actually see blood coursing through her veins, X-ray gray blurred by the clear chitin's X-ray white. Quentin felt a small shiver of disgust ripple through his spine. What do you two want? Denver did the talking.
3: Perhaps, perhaps we are worthy to catch passes while running at full speed.
1: Quentin and Warburg looked at each other in confusion, then back at Denver. What are you talking about, you fucking cricket? Warburg's racial slur stopped all conversation. The players remaining on the flight deck turned to watch.
3: Holy Pine said perhaps we could assist Holy Quentin's passing. We run full speed. He blesses us with direct passes.
1: Quentin's face turned red, while Warburg started laughing. Damn you, Pine. How could you embarrass me like this? Can we help? I don't need help, especially not from the likes of you. Denver's raspers rolled back up behind the chin plate. She leaned back a bit, her posture changing. But Quentin didn't know what that meant, and he was far too furious to care. Oh, Pine really knows how to rub it in.
3: Only Quentin is angry, but we are here to help, to help.
1: It was too much to bear. Quentin turned and stormed away, heading out of the landing bay and back to his room. Help? From a damned unholy Sklorno? As if Quentin were some Bush League quarterback who needed to work on his damn route passing. Fucking Pine. He'd show that asshole. One way or another, he'd show him. You have been listening to The Rookie, Book One of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon, superweaponband.com. You're kind of sick!